0: Okay guys, so whether you're listening to this on the podcast or watching from YouTube, hello. We're, today we're going to be doing a different type of episode for the podcast. So we're going to do a Q&A episode, alright? So I've taken questions um, from Instagram and I'm going to answer them here. So I'm going to try and get through as many as I possibly can um, within reason, okay? So there are a lot there. So if we can even do like 10 to 15 in depth, then that'd be pretty good even 10 in depth and then maybe 10 shorter ones that'd be good Um, so the reason we're doing this this week is because I'm actually away in Brussels for the weekend and the Wi-Fi isn't great so me and Paddy can't record a podcast as normal but hopefully hopefully you will enjoy the kind of Q&A style episode um, because obviously these questions come from you and it's obviously better if the content is tailored to you so we're gonna get started and the first question is is there a difference between fasting one day a week and hitting below total daily any energy expenditure day? Um, so my quick answer is gonna be no, okay? So you know that there's 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 a simple answer and that's no and then there's kind of a more nuanced answer and the more nuanced answer Would be that if you're fasting one day a week then maybe that day of the week you are far less active than you would be if you were eating, okay? So that might influence your, your actual energy output on that day, okay, your energy expenditure. So if you find that when you have that fasting day, you drastically reduce your energy expenditure, your non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, you feel lazier, you don't walk as much, you try to take shortcuts. Um, if you find that, and you find that on the other days, um, you, you're, you're just pretty normal, then maybe that might reduce your energy expenditure slightly and slightly reduce the extent of your deficit, you know. And similarly, if you find that on your regular days when you're just hitting a little bit below your TDEE, your total daily energy expenditure, so having that small deficit across the week instead of a massive deficit one day per week, if you find that that style of eating um, just allows you to maintain your activity levels each day and give you more flexibility as to what days you can train on because obviously you're not going to train on a fasting day and um, that that might be a, a better strategy but to be honest I think the quick answer is no and you should be looking to do exactly you know what works for you essentially but at the same time I think fasting one day per week like it's not the, it's not the best strategy in the world um, practically like for most people they're going, to, they're going to struggle you know to fast one day per week on a consistent basis over time so for example if, if you were doing this as a lifestyle change you know this is your permanent lifestyle change you're going from what you're doing now to doing something that you can sustain a deficit for a while and then maintain that weight loss over time then I probably wouldn't go with a one day per week fast just because I'm not sure how good you're going to be able to maintain that over time so if you think you're going to be able to maintain that over time then that's okay, but generally I'd rather see something a little bit less restrictive, a little bit more based on kind of small changes, um, if it's going to be something sustainable over time. But again, you know, not all diets need to be sustainable and rapid weight loss absolutely you know, has a place, so I mean a more, more aggressive calorie deficit for some people, particularly those without any history or, or current um, disordered eating behaviours, um, so if you have, disordered eating behaviours in that you have a tendency to binge and you you know you're very emotionally tied to food and you know when your emotions are a little bit off you just kind of binge and you feel real guilty about yourself and you change how you feel based on what you eat, all that sort of stuff, so all those kind of disordered eating behaviours if you find you're susceptible to those then I probably wouldn't try fasting just because it can get a little bit out of control so what you can end up doing is you know having a fast one day having a fast another day because you binged and that sort of stuff and it can get messy really really fast okay so that's that's kind of the one caveat that I, w- I would always put in there and that kind of goes for any dietary method really you know you, you want to make sure that you are not exacerbating someone's um, disordered eating behaviours or tendencies towards that and if so if, if you are listening to this and you find that you're just that type of person where you just have very little control you feel like you lack control and not only are you just making irrational food choices but also your emotions are severely affected by that then i would see someone who kind of specializes in that area um, as opposed to just relying on kind of you know the typical fit fam advice when it comes to nutrition so i hope that kind of answers that question in short there's probably not going to be a difference the biggest the biggest you know contributor to Fat loss over the course of a week is going to be the weekly deficit, okay? So obviously there's a big practical difference between reducing your calories slightly every day and having one just no food day per week. <laughs> Difficult practically, um, especially if you have a variable life. You know, if, it, it might be fine if you know there's one day per week every week where you just don't do anything. That's cool, it might suit you, but if you're someone with a variable lifestyle, you train on different days every week, it might not be as easy to schedule that in, so I would kind of, you know, proceed cautiously. Question two. Hi, I'm graduating with a nursing degree, but I've considered doing a master's in physiotherapy. Any advice? Um, I suppose the first thing is to kind of know what you're getting into, and I guess if you've done a degree in nursing and you have hospital experience then you probably have a fair idea of what physiotherapy entails. Okay, so that's that's kind of the first thing I tell everyone when they ask me about physio um, is that, you know, t- to recognize that you're not just going into physio to be like some sort of, you know, strength and conditioning coach, you know. Because some people go into physio thinking that sort of stuff. They think they're going to, you know, be putting their hands on people and solving all the problems and giving them the special exercise that solve everyone's problems, and it's all athletes and all that. But in reality, you know, physio is more so you know especially now given that you know we're living longer and non-communicable diseases are more of a problem and um, you tend to work with a, a lot of the the older population <clears throat> so you know there's a couple of different branches to physiotherapy so you've got your musculoskeletal physiotherapy which is kind of your your typical physio that everyone thinks of so you know you've got you know a tendinopathy or your post fracture or you know you've got a sore shoulder that's all the musculoskeletal side of things. And you've also got orthopedics within that, you know, which might be people after total hip replacement, total knee replacement, that sort of stuff. Okay, so that's your kind of musculoskeletal side of things. Musculo, muscle, skeletal, bone. Okay, so it's kind of the muscles and bone side of things. Obviously, tendons, ligaments, and the whole person, etc. And um, But that's the musculoskeletal branch of things. Then you've got your respiratory physiotherapy, where you're going to be working with you know people with chronic respiratory conditions like um, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and people with asthma some other chronic conditions, maybe lung cancer and stuff like that, interstitial lung disease, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, and then you might have you know, some of the younger population, with, especially as it relates to cystic fibrosis, okay? so physiotherapy is very important for that population. So they're the types of things that you might see um, when working in, a res- in respiratory physiotherapy. And then you've got neurological physiotherapy, and that's more related to your strokes, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, motor neuron disease, etc so all those types of things chronic neurological conditions that people might be dealing with um, you know so so they, they do all have their, their different aspects and they're kinda of the main branches but it obviously branches off further in that you could be working you know in, oncolo- in oncology specifically you could be working in palliative care you could just be working in a general care in the elderly ward um, and getting people up after operations And and stuff like that okay so it it does really vary in terms of what physiotherapy can offer you so I think that that's probably the most important thing is just to to recognize what I said and and realize that there's a lot that goes into it that people don't really think about okay so people just just think of the the outpatient musculoskeletal side of things whereas there's a lot more to it Um, and obviously that has implications for you know where you're going to end up working because if you think that you know you're just getting into physio and you're obviously going to get a musculoskeletal job, then that might require you doing clinical rotations in all of those areas first and then specializing within a hospital with the musculoskeletal stuff and then eventually opening up your private practice down the road so that's how the path might look so I think it's just important to realize that, that's probably the the best advice Um, along with realizing that the master's program is quite condensed it's going to require a lot of your time for two years um, going to be relatively challenging Um, but you know you're you're in and out pretty quickly and it's nice to have that professional qualification um, in your pocket so i I hope that helps in some some way Um, next question thoughts on marijuana i don't really have any thoughts on marijuana Um, we're quite focused obviously on the health side of things here at triage so i wouldn't be recommending that people um, use marijuana like yeah you can you can go on about how there's special clinical cases where medical marijuana might be warranted, but we don't deal with those cases. Um, We're advising the general population on how to best manage their health and stay fit and get strong, etc. And to me, marijuana just just doesn't have a a place um, in there. Not only for any potential deleterious effects on your health, but also generally because we like to promote um, self-efficacy at triage quite a bit, so we don't want people to have crutches in their life that they rely on to get through each day, okay? So if, if marijuana is something you rely on, then I would be looking to address other aspects of your life, and the same goes for alcohol or any other you know, drug that you're going to be using to try and kind of use as a coping mechanism for life. So I would be addressing those things and point you to kind of seeing those as problems as opposed to just coping with marijuana. And you know, some people say other things, like, oh, but it helps you sleep. It doesn't help you sleep. Marijuana doesn't help you sleep. It helps you. It might help you get to sleep, but it compromises the quality of your sleep. Um, So you're essentially just going to sleep and not getting the benefits of it. Um, And that's the same goes for alcohol in that case as well. Um, So it's just important to understand those things. And when looking for advice on marijuana, don't ask your, you know, your stoner friend who read a few articles online because you actually have to kind of look at the, the scientific evidence side of things and see what effects you're interested in. So if you're more interested in, you know, what sort of things um, marijuana might do to your health, then I'd be looking more towards PubMed or articles with references and stuff like that as opposed to just, you know, pop pop science articles on the internet. Did you have a good time on your holidays? Yes I did. Did you? I hope you did. Um, We're still here this morning in Brussels so we've got until like 2 o'clock so i got to get this Q&A out of the way so we can go enjoy um, Brussels. Um, But yeah, it's been enjoyable. (coughs) Do you have any articles on the basics or steps of cutting? I'm 105kg, lots of fat, lots of gains. At least you've got lots of gains. You know that's one of the good things about, about muscle in that you can have a much higher BMI um, much more body fat than someone else, but if you've got muscle, you've got you're in a much better position in terms of health and longevity. Um, so that's one of the things that I would say is important to realise about if if you are in the overweight or obese category, or if you're carrying a lot of body fat, is to realise that you know even if you are. Really struggling with the weight loss side of things, and you think that's not something you're going to be able to, you know, do in the next six months to a year or whatever. You're just not able. You're not in the position. Life's throwing lots of things at you. Then you can gain muscle and still get fit, fit and still improve your health. Okay, so health, even if you're overweight and obese, is not just about the weight. It's not just about fat loss. It's also about looking at the bigger picture and recognizing that, you know, exercise has a role there, regardless of who you are, of what weight you are, it still plays a role, okay? Um, so that's step one. Step two, then, about the cutting. And um, there's no particular like best practice for steps of cutting, you know? In that it's going to vary for pretty much everyone, okay? The only thing that, you, that we know is that you need to be in a calorie deficit. So you need to find some way that you can reduce your caloric intake um, in such a way that you can continue to lose fat over time or over a short period of time if that's what might be best for you. I can't tell you that because I don't know anything else about you other than your body weight. Okay, So there's no particular steps that you need to go through but if I was someone that was trying to guide myself in terms of just you're just taking this advice that I'm giving you I would probably look at my diet and see are there any obvious things that I can change here that are just stupid? You know, like if you're if you're a college student for example and you go to lunch, you go for your lunch every day and you have a chicken roll, a bag of crisps and a bottle of coke, it's like, alright like, you know you can improve that, like surely that, that's something that's fairly obvious to be improved but it's not like you have to just go totally to the polar opposite you know, side of things and just get a fucking salad and full stop, you know? <laughs> that's not how it needs to be. Like what I would do in that case is say, alright I actually really love my chicken roll so I'm gonna have my chicken roll but I'm gonna have a diet coke and instead of crisps, I'm gonna have an apple. Boom, all right, that's 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 a reduction in your caloric intake, a significant reduction in your caloric intake, because probably like 100 less calories in the crisps, and probably like 200 less calories from the Coca-Cola, I think. Um, but like, I mean, that's that's 300 calories gone from your day. So if you were in maintenance, then you're now in a deficit, boom, you're in a deficit, and you just made that small change. And the great thing about that, is that it doesn't require a lot of change in terms of your schedule so it's it's very e- it's very easy behavior change to put into practice so you don't need to change the meals that you prep you don't need to go home and spend an hour or two you know filling tupperware tupperware with all your meals so that's a relatively simple change that you can put into practice the other thing about that as well is that there's kind of social benefits okay so one of the big the big challenges for people when they start trying to lose to lose fat and and change their diet for the positive, is that they have to kind of change the person that they are within their social circle. Okay, so for example, your friends might think of you as the person that always eats big meals, you know, you're a bit of a legend for that, you know, when we go out for food you always get big meals, that's cool. Um, it's, your, your friends might give you stick about that. It's, it's kind of it's normal, it's Ireland, you're a lad, we tend to give each other stick about everything, alright? So you might get a bit of stick about that normally. So for example, if you were to go to the shop and you were to get your salad, you'd probably get stick from the lads, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable with it. While you shouldn't really, while you shouldn't really have to feel bad about health decisions, it might be something that you, you just don't really feel comfortable with, especially at the start when you're trying to make sustainable behaviour change, it can be difficult. Okay. So what I would be saying is that if you've just swapped to a Diet Coke, and you swap to an apple and you're still having a chicken roll, it's like that's a relatively minute change. Okay, so it's not something that massively changes your identity, you know, who you identify as and who your friends feel that you are. And that might feel like it's, that might sound like something insignificant, but it's actually pretty significant in practice when you try to get people to change their behaviors because they're essentially trying to change who they are, who they feel they are, and who their friends recognize them as. Um, and while I don't think I would struggle with that side of things. I can appreciate how others do struggle with it. Um, and then after that, in terms of cutting, obviously you want to have a decent level of activity. If you were exercising and you're training, brilliant, you know that's that's obviously best practice. We want to see someone training towards something, training towards having more muscle mass, having better respiratory fitness, etc. That's all very important. But also just generally being active. So if you're quite sedentary, you play video games, you work in an office, you don't really walk much trying to get your steps up, your daily steps up, like going out for a walk actively, maybe in the morning, in the evening, you know, going for a little stroll on your lunch break, and not taking the stairs, parking further away, all those sorts of things. I'd be looking to put those in practice just because it's an easy, easy way to increase your, you know, daily energy expenditure, or, or if you want to gimmick it up, it boost your metabolism, okay? So that's essentially what it's doing if you're talking about metabolism as being the, you know, accumulation of all of the, the energy that you burn throughout the day okay if if that's what that's what it means to you then you boost your metabolism Um, and other than that you know it's difficult to give you specific advice because I don't know if you've already started dieting I don't know what you've struggled with in the past I don't know what your your diet currently looks like so so do we have any articles and yes we have a free article on site on the basics of setting up your nutrition and you know I think it's titled fundamental nutritional sciences nutritional science uh, calories and macronutrients it's a fairly basic article it just runs you through the basics of you know how to you know at least find your maintenance caloric intake and how to um, get into a deficit etc and um, it is quite dated you need probably need to review it and just just take a look make sure it's still everything we agree with but that's that's a an article you can start off with also when you sign up with our email list we do send you the kind of living lean um, which is a periodized nutrition ebook, it's just a, a pretty generic um, way of adjusting your nutrition over time for the kind of typical person that goes that, that is kind of involved in fitness already, who you know is, is interested in cutting down for a while, gaining for a while, maintaining for a while, that sort of thing, but that mightn't be where you are right now. So you might need to just start with basic behavior changes and that sort of stuff. Um, And we will be updating our our Fundamentals eBook this January, so that'll be out in January. And that's essentially going to be an eBook that is designed for people like yourself and and other people here that are just getting into the swing of things. Okay, So you're not one of the heavily involved Fit Farmers, you're getting into things. It's for the beginners. That's what we want uh, that book to be for. Um, So expect that coming soon. Paddy Farrell, why do you always go on holidays when there's work to do? Um, Because, you know, my, my mother runs a secret private business in the home and she says that I need to leave the house four times a year for them to run their meetings. So, gotta do what you gotta do. Lauren Ryan, I just realized I wasn't saying names all along, probably should have said names. I think it's good to recognize that people are asking these. <laughs> um, Lauren Ryan asks, is it possible to be in an anabolic state if training very heavily cardiovascularly? Is it possible? Yes. Okay. <laughs> is it possible to be in an anabolic state? Yes, it is. But, you know, it it, it, it depends, okay? and. It depends as well. as It's not just a cop-out answer when someone says it depends, but <laughs> One of the, the, the problems with people, more and more people saying it depends especially on social media Is that people say it depends and then they don't tell you what it depends on and when it depends on it and how to find out You know what the right answer is <laughs> so people instead just kind of just throw it depends out there and list a load of variables and don't really explain much so <laughs> what, what this depends on is one, your history with strength training. Okay, so for, <coughs> excuse me. so for example, if you have been weight training for a long period of time, you've already built muscle, you've already built strength, and then you start training very heavily, 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 from a cardiovascular perspective, so you're doing lots of running, for example, then in that context, it's less likely that you're going to be in a good position to build muscle. Because you've taken, you've taken your genetics, you've maybe trained for a few years and really tried to squeeze out as much gains as you could in that period of time and then when you're at that point you generally need to do more to gain less. So if you're taking away some of your anabolic potential by doing loads of cardiovascular work then that's more meaningful to you because you were already in a position where you, you were only getting a small return, on, return for a large investment of effort and total work, okay? So obviously, the more trained you become, the more things you have to do right. So if you were suddenly taking away some of your strength training in place of lots of cardiovascular training, then that's probably not a good move from an anabolic perspective. Whereas, if you're on the other side of things, and you're an endurance you, let's say you're an endurance runner, you you are running like four or five days a week, but you've never done any strength training ever. It was never a thing that you did. Um, maybe you also never focused on your diet, you never ate adequate protein, you were always in a calorie deficit, etc. And now you begin strength training and to to with with building muscle and strength in mind, and you eat a higher protein diet and a calorie surplus, then yes, you are in a, an anabolic state. You were absolutely, you absolutely have potential to build muscle. Could you build more muscle if you were doing only like two cardiovascular sessions a week and you were doing mostly strength training? Yeah, probably. But clearly if you're training very heavily ca- cardiovascularly, there's a goal there, okay? So there's a goal there already. So we just have to realize that that is the context that we're dealing with. So it's, it's sort of a spectrum. It's like, are you the beginner? Are you the beginner to strength training who was previously doing everything poorly that would lead to anabolism? Or are you the advanced strength trainee who's now doing cardiovascular work and was already doing all of the strength training and muscle building things well? If you're that person, it's going to be difficult to build muscle. If you're this person, it's still going to be pretty easy to build muscle, okay? So it's spectrum there. So what you want to do is do most of the things that you can well, okay? So for example, don't be in a calorie deficit, okay? If you're if you're training for, for endurance sports or whatever, and you're now adding in strength training as well, and you're increasing your total training load, then you want to recognize that, all right, I might eat more, more food in my diet, I might need to eat more to support this training. So, you know, it, being in a relative energy deficit over time um, is a problem in endurance sports. So you, you do have to be kind of mindful of that. Um, not just from not building muscle, but from a health perspective. So you want to make sure you're at least at maintenance, and preferably if you're in a phase where you're trying to build muscle, you want to be in a surplus. And you also want to make sure that you're eating adequate protein, okay? So if you're currently you know, only eating a gram of protein per kilo of your body weight, then getting that up to at least 1.5 grams per kilo of your body weight, and between that 1.5 to 2 gram range, um, that'd be brilliant. That'd be a really good step for you. And to to support muscle building okay and obviously then you know you want to sleep well you want to make sure that your total training load isn't too high in general so for example you could be training very heavily cardiovascularly but it could still be too much you know you could be doing like 14 sessions a week and the only reason you're training is for like I don't know, like casual ten k's or something. So you have to, you know, think about the goal, what your overall goal is, and then how much effort you can afford to actually put into strength training and to building muscle. And um, that's probably the best answer I have, just to recognise that it is a spectrum. Um, if you're not, if you're not doing ridiculous amounts of cardiovascular work, you generally don't have to be too worried about. Um, a sort of interference effect in terms of cardio, cardio compromising your gains um, a moderate amount of cardiovascular work can support your gains you want to have a good level of fitness that is good for your gains good for your, your recovery between sessions, your recovery within the session tolerating more volume over time, they're all benefits um, but obviously there's a, there's, a, there's a point of diminishing returns whereby if you continue to do more and more cardiovascular work it is eventually going to compromise your strength training so just keep those things in mind Next question um, advice for seeking a girlfriend with the same values of and viewpoint in life as you without actively seeking it So to speak and just going with the flow. I'm not a relationship guru. Am I? (laughs) Well my my immediate answer to this would be um, Like don't like I I don't think it's a useful thing to try and seek a girlfriend with the same values and viewpoint in life as you you know you, you you want like not that you want but I mean it's totally okay to have someone that has different values and different viewpoints than you okay because if you're if you're in this position and you're looking for that type of person then you're acting on the assumption that somehow your values and viewpoints are superior to everyone else's okay and i don't think that's a that's a good thing like i know that personally i have values and viewpoints that have changed over time you know that 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 I'm glad that they changed over time. So it's not like you know, 21 year old me had the exact same values and viewpoints on everything as 23 year old me. So you know, if if 21 year old you, year old me was to go and you know find a girlfriend that was the exact same values as me, do you want you do you want to just live in an echo chamber whereby you both just kind of feed on each other's values and viewpoints and confirm each other's biases over time? Like no, you don't want that, okay? So if someone has different values and viewpoints to you. That's okay. As long as they're not ridiculous. Like, I mean, if she's literally a Nazi and she's, like, fucking Hitler posters all over her room, then I would be like, alright, like, maybe let's let's not do this. But, I mean, if you have slight, like, differences in, like, I don't know, your political views or what you want to get out of life and stuff like that, like, that's, that's totally normal. Like, me and my girlfriend definitely do not share the same values and viewpoints on everything. And I think if we did, it probably wouldn't be the best thing because I think there are probably things that I could challenge her on that would be a benefit to her and things that she could challenge me on that would be a benefit to me. And I think without that, you're not really kind of helping each other develop. And I think if you're that person that just thinks that your values and viewpoints are always the best and there's no way you can possibly change them, then you're probably ignorant and close minded. I'm not saying this about you Jack because um, I kind of get where you're coming from and that I think when you say values and viewpoints you're probably thinking more along the lines of you don't like going out in the session all the time, you like going to the gym and that sort of stuff and maybe you don't want to go out with someone who is like a session mat or something along those lines so you know there's there's obviously kind of there's a spectrum there um, so yeah that's, that's sort of my best answer is that yeah, you probably want to find someone that you know is isn't isn't totally ri- ridiculous or, or totally polarized to you, um, but you also don't want to find someone that just confirms everything that you say, that listens to you and just kind of acts like your little puppy and you know confirms everything that you say and is like oh you're you're so right with everything like that's that's not healthy in my opinion um, and how to go and seek that person that doesn't have you know t- totally different t- totally different things in terms of liking the gym and 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 not wanting to go out and stuff like that, they don't need to, you know, they, they just don't need to. But, I mean, if you're within certain social circles, then I imagine you're not aligning yourself with social circles in which people that you don't associate with are going to be in anyway. So, I don't know, because I don't know much about your social life, but that's probably my best advice, and call me a relationship guru. <laughs> Next question, Mairead. Thoughts on the Jefferson curl for lower back pain specifically, should you progressively load them? okay so when it comes to using an exercise like the jefferson curl so for people who don't know what a jefferson curl is just look it up it's essentially like a stiff leg deadlift variation whereby you actually go into maximal spinal flexion and move your spine as much as you can as well as your hips Um, with the goal of essentially like bringing the bar or kettlebell or dumbbell down as close to your toes and past if you can stand on a box um, as possible so the, the first thing is that the main benefit, in my opinion, of a Jefferson curl for someone with lower back pain is going to be psychological, okay? So you essentially want to challenge any fear of movement that that person has, and you know, those kind of fear avoidance behaviors that people might have. So if people have adopted, you know, certain maladaptive coping strategies in that if they go to pick up a pen now, they don't pick it up um as you normally would they wouldn't just bend down and do it freely they might you know put their two their two hands on their knees bend over in you know a, a neutral spine and then they they really kind of rotate down slowly and pick up the pain like if people are starting to adopt behaviors like that just based on back pain then you want to kind of challenge those you know and if someone has really been avoiding any sort of spinal flexion then they're the things you kind of want to be challenging okay so i would say the benefits are primarily psychological but obviously they facilitate changes in movement after that. Okay, so if you're changing someone you're changing someone's movement behaviour potentially, which has you know both psychological and physical effects. So that's that's step one in that I don't think Jefferson curls are necessarily going to have any effect on anything in the spine or around the spine directly that's going to reduce someone's pain by increasing tolerance or anything like that like it might, it has the potential to do that I probably used to believe they did in the past more than I do now and um, I think now I would be more looking towards the psychological effects of using an exercise like that and it doesn't have to be the Jefferson Curl it could simply be getting someone to reach down towards their toes in spinal flexion um, to just kind of increase their tolerance both physically and psychologically to going there. there so, yeah, that that's that's point number one is that that's the most important thing now point number two is like should us should you progressively load them um I'm not sure if you'd asked me a year ago I probably would have said yeah like because I think I think maybe like one or two years ago I was probably in the in the more of them the mindset that just get everything strong through all of its ranges regardless but I think to justify that stance you have to have a good you'd have to have a good solid evidence base to suggest that there are no negative effects on the spine or the discs or pain over time by progressive loading in that sort of, you know, beyond the neutral zone inflection of, of the spine. Okay, so you you'd you need to, I think you'd have to have a good amount of evidence to suggest that just because if you look at the, the evidence that has kind of informed the more neutral spine side of things, it's, it's, it's got, it's, it's pretty strong that it's got multiple layers and particularly for progressively loaded movements, okay, so I wouldn't just, you know, throw the baby off with the bathwater and say, and say that because, because, you know, flexion isn't necessarily bad that we should be looking to rapidly load it, you know, as much as possible with loads of volume like we would any other exercise. I'm not sure that's the case um, and I think I think you just need evidence to justify that, so I mean the other, th- the other part of that is that we are going into flexion all of the time anyway. Even if you go into, even if you do a squat or a deadlift with something that visually looks like a neutral spine, you are objectively in flexion, okay? So we have evidence that came out this year to suggest that, that even when people are looking to maintain that neutral spine, they're still in flexion, okay? So they're still within that, they're still in the kind of neutral zone, but they're in the flexion side of that, okay? So you could still be in like 10 to 30 degrees of flexion and it might look like neutral, okay, but obviously the flexion in an individual segment doesn't necessarily reflect the flexion of the the whole spine, so that has to be considered too. But um, I guess you just have to. well it's fine. <laughs> Laura's cooking and she's like, "Oh my god, they're gonna hear me!" But the microphone's pointing this way, so it should be okay. Um. So yeah, just to, just to, just to kind of put that all into 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 one little package, all right? So we we know that flexion in everyday life probably isn't a problem, okay? So if you're flexing to you pick up a pen, um, I'm sitting here flexed, that sort of stuff. That's probably not a big deal. If you're flexing if you like loads, that's probably not a big deal. If you go into a little bit of flexion on some of your deadlift reps and stuff like that, I wouldn't be getting too stressed about that. But I mean, do, do we do we take that to the extreme and say that? We should progressively load end range flexion in as much flexion as we possibly can with lots of reps, lots of sets over time. I'm not sure, okay? Because we don't have the evidence that gives us the answers as to what adaptations take place. So the spine, you know, is likely to adapt um, just, just, just like any other area of the body. So it's going to, it's going to adapt, um, the discs might adapt, you know, the ligaments might adapt, um, the, the bones might adapt to some degree, the muscles around that area are going to adapt. So if all those things can adapt and we have evidence of that, then then what we can say is that oh, this is actually beneficial because you increase tolerance over time. But I think it's probably just, just, just good to be conservative there and not to you know, go totally to the extreme and just conclude that without any evidence of that. You know? So there, there, there is evidence to suggest that the, the ligaments of the spine do, do undergo creep and that they, they lengthen with that sort of repeated flexion. So I think, you know, that, that's like, all right, now we know that, what does that mean? You know, so you kind of have to put that into the bigger picture. And for that, we need more evidence on longer term loading of the spine in perfect, you know, flexion that is intentional. Okay, so not just a little bit of flexion and deadlift, but I mean, we're trying to maximize flexion. Okay, so until that point, I would probably be more conservative in loading flexion of the spine. I still think it's it's probably a good idea, and I'd be I'd be happy to recommend someone to do a Jefferson curl type of exercise, but you know, having previously assessed their active range, so how far can you get into spinal flexion, um, actively, you know, with, with with control, without the weight just pulling you beyond that. Okay, I think I think you can do that sort of stuff, and there are definitely some exercises that you can go into flexion and extension on that aren't a problem, but you just have to ask yourself, you know, am I am I willing to just Go all out and just suggest that ah, flexion doesn't matter at all. Load it up as much as you want. Loads of volume. Loads of loads of reps. Loads of sets. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Um, and and my, my opinion on that will change over time as the evidence changes. And it's likely that either of those things could be the end, end result. So we might find out that, or uh, you know, when you when you train flexion over time, your discs become ridiculously resilient and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> you might find that over time when you train flexion and you get a, little, a more rapid increase in disc degeneration and stuff like that so there's there's no answer I can give you that's perfect but your question specifically was about should you progressively load them for lower back pain um, I'm not sure you know I don't, I don't think there's a clear answer there it depends you know why you have lower back pain whether it's chronic but I know you're actually, you, you lift, like you train for powerlifting. So I mean, the, the, biggest, the biggest variable there that's going to affect pain over time in, in someone who is training for powerlifting is load management, okay? So the actual, the way in which you progress your loading over time and how much total loading you have within your program. So for example, if you're doing like 20 sets of squats a week and 15 sets of deadlifts, well, that's a lot of volume you have to ask yourself, how did I get there, okay? So if you went from half that level of volume and jumped up, and then started to, to have pain, then the, the best thing you could do would be to reduce total volume, reduce the intensity you're working at, and reduce your relative intensity in terms of leaving more reps in reserve on each step. The, there, that's the biggest thing you need to worry about with low back pain as it relates to strength training. Um, but yeah, and just one more point on, on, on that side of things. You know, we know that, you know, disc degeneration um, bulging discs etc all the disc talk it's fairly poorly related to pain okay so there's a there's a pretty high base rate of disc, disc degeneration and you know bul- bulging discs so to speak there's a fairly high base rate which means that there's a, there's a high prevalence of those things in the in the general population general asymptomatic population, of so people who have no symptoms of lower back pain and still have those things so we know that those things aren't necessarily associated with pain and we also know that you can have pain that exists in the, in the back as a result of no identifiable pathology so if you know that you can have the things that might indicate pathology without pain and you know that you can have pain without any of those things in indicative of, of pathology then you need to look beyond specific structural solutions so for example um, I know not you don't think this but if you were if you were speaking to someone you know and they tell you that oh it's it's this one specific muscle that's the problem that's a it's a pretty strong and specific conclusion to come to and you'd need to have good evidence to support that and um, similarly you know you might go to a chiropractor who kind of readjusts something and it's like all right that that might necessarily be the solution either so you have to just consider the bigger picture, consider what's contributing to pain, and then go with your best bets when it comes to lower back pain as it relates to strength training. And that is probably load management. That's probably the, the most important thing. Um, if there are other lifestyle, lifestyle variables that you deal with in terms of your occupation that exacerbate your pain, then you may need to have some you know, activity modification there. But obviously, if you are dealing with pain, consult with a physio- physiotherapist. Um, and don't just trust my advice on a video. But I hope that answers your question, Mairead. Um In short, there's no short, quick answer. There's no simple answer to that question. I don't know if you should progressively load them. I think it's, I think, I think while it's a position I would have held in the past at some point, um, it's quite, it's taking it to the extreme to suggest that it just doesn't matter and you can load it as much as you want. But it's also extreme to suggest that we should all maintain a perfectly neutral spine all the time. So context matters. You need to think of the total, the total load um, and repetitions, etc. when you're thinking about flexion as being good or bad, etc. cetera, all right? That was a big overview, and I'd probably give you a better answer if I had actually reviewed some of the evidence I'm talking about in my head before discussing this. Um, but yeah, we can chat more about it if you want. Biggest calorie deficit. Uh, biggest calorie, from Francisco VZ twelve biggest calorie deficit you ever tried and succeeded using on a cut. Um, that was earlier this year when I dieted for five weeks prior to Bali. I ate about eighteen hundred calories on average, which isn't that low for some people, but is very low for me. Okay, so I was quite active on placement at the time, walking to and from placement. My maintenance caloric intake was probably around twenty eight hundred at the time, so it's a thousand calorie deficit for me, which is a fairly significant deficit over the course of you know a, a five-week period um, so yeah that that was the the most um the largest deficit i've tried um, but i don't think you need to sh- you don't necessarily need to shy away from more aggressive calorie deficits provided again that you don't have any disorder eating behaviors okay so if you if you're if you're someone who every time you get into a deficit you start to binge, and you already have a poor relationship with food. Then that's that to me would be contraindication for aggressive calorie deficit. Okay, but yeah, a thousand to answer your question. Just curious, I heard that squatting can boost testosterone. What's your thoughts on this? Okay, so step one, you know, small changes here and there within the physiological range of you know testosterone um, are, not, are not very meaningful not very important but more specifically to this question if you're talking about the effects that lifting might have on testosterone and other hormones post training then that's relatively irrelevant for your gains okay so the, the acute hormone response to lifting um, does not necessarily have an effect on your gains okay so there's, there's we have evidence to support that that you know you do see differences in certain hormones post training and you know that will vary between you know high intensity my moderate intensity training and different lifts that you do etc but that's not relevant to your gains so I wouldn't be worried about that so the answer is it doesn't matter <laughs> muscle memory how long should it take to get back to your original size if out of the gym for approximately six weeks and um, firstly you might not have actually lost any size in six weeks. Like, like Some people will, you probably feel a little bit smaller anyway just as a result of um, muscle glycogen not necessarily being stored um, in your muscles anymore. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a, pretty, a pretty obvious and understandable response from the body in that you don't need to store loads of carbohydrate within your muscles if you are not training, okay? So if you, if you haven't been training, then there's no need for your body to completely replenish those muscle glycogen stores since they don't have the demand. Um, for that, that glycogen, that glucose, that ATP in the first place. So, you probably feel a bit smaller as a result of that, your muscles not storing as much glycogen, um, so glycogen is sensitive your muscle carbohydrate store, that also stores water with it, so you're going to feel a little bit deflated as a result of not lifting. Um, in terms of loss of muscle mass, you, you, you just probably didn't lose much, so there's no real answer, because being out of the gym for six weeks doesn't mean, it doesn't really mean anything in terms of regaining gains. What's more relevant is that is, is how much muscle you lost, so I mean, I was out of the gym for six weeks because I was undergoing chem- chemotherapy for cancer treatment, it's like whoa, alright, now we're talking a different game, because you've obviously lost lots of gains. but I mean, you were out of the gym for six weeks because you were playing more football or whatever, it's like that, not important, you're going to get those gains back fast, okay, so it depends on, on how much you you actually lost, you probably didn't lose much, and you're going to get it back pretty fast. So I mean, the, the best advice you can give, give to someone with that, that's coming back um, from training is to start slowly. Do not go back in the training plan you were on before you start, you took six weeks off. You're going to be very sore. Maybe start with one to two sets max of each exercise. Um, you normally, normally might do three to five, and leave about three reps in the tank on week, week one, for sure, okay? Um, be conservative with the ranges of motion that you use. For, so for example if you normally do you know lots of end range exercises for example like a stiff leg deadlift where you're going to get lots more muscle damage down in that end range because the muscle is lengthened but maybe just be a conservative with the range that you use on week one. The result of all of that is that you're going to be essentially taking advantage of the repeat about effect so adaptations that take place early on in training um, that protect you against subsequent um, muscle soreness, so that delayed onset muscle soreness that you generally experience, you will not experience it that quite as bad if you start really light and then on week two begin to progress things. As you know, if you were to go back in and start going to failure in end ranges with lots of volume on week one, you are going to be crippled, and that's not the goal. Um, so yeah, there's no answer how how long it takes to get to get it back. I don't know. I don't even know if you lost anything. Is cutting out complex carbs a good weight loss method? And will reintroducing them result in weight gain? Um, no, it's not a good weight loss method. It's a, a fairly poor strategy, to be honest, in that so- sources of complex carbohydrates um, are generally your sources of fiber and sources of a pretty wide variety of micronutrients and phytonutrients and antioxidants. And It's just a generally poor strategy to try and reduce um, a pretty core part of a healthful diet so I mean if you're going to say that I'm gonna I'm gonna take you know sweet potatoes and I'm gonna take my lentils and I'm gonna take my oats out of my diet like that's just a pretty poor strategy like I would be more inclined to suggest reducing the clear disposable parts of your diet so for example if you cook all of your meals in oil boom there you go that's loads of calories gone by just not doing that anymore choose the leaner cuts of meat you know stop snacking those sorts of things are far better strategies than to just cut complex carbs out of your diet Because I assume you're trying to just cut carbon in, in in total because obviously like it, it wouldn't make much sense for weight loss perspective to keep in like Sugary type of foods and then just cut out all the fibrous ones I like, like I don't think that's that's probably not a good strategy So I imagine your strategy here is to totally cut out carbohydrates um, or at least minimize them and I think that's a, a fairly not like I don't think that's a useful strategy for fat loss for a lot of people, just because, like, it's unless you're trying to rapidly lose fat, you're trying to really really reduce your calories as low as you can possibly get them. I don't see why you wouldn't keep in foods that are quite helpful and um, supporting your digestive health, supporting your fullness. Um, so to maintain your fullness as you're dieting and stuff like that, um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's, it's a good strategy. And will reintroducing them back result in weight gain? Uh, yes, because you have removed a certain amount of calories from your diet. I mean, if, you're just, if you remove 500 calories worth of complex carbohydrate sources and then you add those 500 calories back in, if that puts you back in maintenance, the then no, you're not going to gain weight bar some initial gain in water weight. Um, but I mean, if you, if you take out a, a thousand calories and you were already in a 500 calorie surplus You take those out and then you put them back in and yes, you're going to gain weight because you're going to be back in a surplus. So yeah, I just think that's that's a relatively short-sighted way of looking at how to change your diet with the goal of weight loss. So I wouldn't be recommending it.